Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into this special topic of mercy, this very rich topic of mercy. Um, we have been at it now for uh, two or three months, really reflecting into what mercy is all about as it comes to us from sacred scripture, from sacred tradition, and of course, um, in church history, especially in the 20th century. Uh, so here we are uh, talking about mercy in the light of some pretty important, just not 20th century figures, but 21st century figures, because this evening our point of emphasis will be on Benedict XVI. But before we get into Benedict XVI, maybe just a few words about what we've talked about, um, to the least of which is what mercy is all about, right? Love is mercy when it enters into the suffering of another. Love is mercy when it enters into the poverty of another. Love is mercy when we allow our heart to be open to other and allowing other to speak to our heart. Huh? This is what we can call mystical mercy. You've heard me emphasize over the course of recent months the importance of understanding the mystical. And by the mystical, what do I mean? Well, the way in which we have this supernatural, extraordinary encounter with the divine. And out from that encounter, this keen conviction arises within us to live a more extraordinary life within the ordinary. So what does that mean? That means taking each encounter as something ordained by God. Just as we might look at a, a piece of art and how we never just look at it, but we look into it, through it. So are we to look at all of our encounters that way. How God wishes for us to see something mystical. How God wants us to see each encounter as something ordained by Him, something with a deeper dimension to it. Um, we say mystical mercy because ultimately, <laughs> as uh, the saints have reminded us, by their very lives, we are to see all strangers as gifts to us, as it is Jesus Christ coming to us through those we don't know. This is what makes us fundamentally Christian, right? Now, that being said, we have highlighted uh, mercy in those three all-important words, huh? Receive, share, and trust. Receive, share, and trust. So we receive God's gift of mercy, we share this mercy in word and deed, and then we are made to trust, right? We are made to trust. And does this not bring us back to the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Well, to simplify it, it means love given, love received, love shared, right? And in the light of what I just said about mercy, with those three words, receive, share, and trust, there is mercy, right? <laughs> mercy lives in the Trinity. Because if the Trinity is about relationship, then it is also about trust, right? Trust to Jesus I trust in you. So as we have taken up various figures to better understand mercy, just not in the 20th century, but also those figures of St. Alphonsus Liguori and St. Margaret Mary that also helped us better understand mercy, 
we do appreciate how all of these great saints that we have been talking about have really helped us better understand why mercy is so important. And as I speak to this, it should come to no surprise that certainly mercy was on the lips of our next figure that we are going to talk about this evening, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. My friends, consider his first message as Pope on April 20th, 2005, when he said this, Dear friends, this deep gratitude for a gift of divine mercy is uppermost in my heart in spite of all, and I consider it a special grace which my venerable predecessor, John Paul II, has obtained for me. I seem to feel his strong hand clasping mine. I love that image. I seem to see his smiling eyes and hear his words at this moment addressed specifically to me. Do not be afraid. There it is. Do not be afraid. We have learned over recent weeks that fear and its counter-virtue of trust is the threshold of mercy, right? I just spoke of trust. Why is trust so important? Because if we lie in fear in the spiritual life, we are never going to be free. Huh? It's interesting. If you were to think about it, the first homily ever given was spoken on the Judean hills surrounding the little town of Bethlehem, where an angel appeared to a humble virgin in the simple town of Nazareth. Among the first words in that homily were what? Fear not. Huh? Have you noticed that before? Fear not. Oh, how we can say that phrase echoes up and down sacred scripture. When a being from a higher dimension breaks into our world, he typically says what? Do not be afraid. Uh, read the Old Testament. Time and time again, this is what you hear. Do not be afraid. And why? Is not fear the fundamental problem, the fundamental thing that holds us back? Fear is what undergirds most forms of human dysfunction. Because we are afraid, we crouch protectively around ourselves. Because we are afraid, we lash out at each other in violence. Because we are afraid, we cease to be who God is calling us to be. Now, what overcomes this fear? Well, the presence of God and one, what accompanies this presence, but the spiritual fruit of joy. Consider the same passage that we were just reflecting with. What does the angel go on to say? For behold, I bring you good tidings of great, what? Joy, which shall be to one person, two people. No, all people. So in a manner of speaking, the angel of Bethlehem is the first great evangelist, huh? Because he speaks of this good news, news that is good for everyone. And of course, the glad tidings, the good news, is that he has come to save us and ransom us from sin in the greatness of his what? Mercy. His mercy. And for this, we rejoice. For this, we rejoice. Now, that being said, one of Benedict XVI's most important contributions to the life of the church and the church's reflection on mercy comes to us with his encyclical titled Charity in Truth. Charity in Truth. And now in one of his most striking paragraphs, he said this, Truth needs to be sought, found, and expressed 
within the economy of charity. But charity in its turn needs to be understood, confirmed, and practiced in the light of truth. In this way, not only do we do a service to charity enlightened by truth, but we also help give credibility to truth, demonstrating its persuasive and authenticating power in the practical setting of social living. He closes, This is a matter of no small account today. In a social and cultural context, which relativizes truth, often paying little heed to it and showing increasing reluctance to acknowledge its existence. How's that? This increasing reluctance to acknowledge truth's very existence. Have we experienced that before? So the Pope goes on to explain that without truth, charity degenerates into this, what he calls, sentimentality. You've heard me talk about that before where love becomes an empty shell to be filled in in an arbitrary way. What have we said about truth in this context? Is truth subject to time? No. Is truth something arbitrary? No. Truth is something to be discovered. Very important. Christ, as the fullness of truth, came to reveal the fullness of truth. Now, Benedict XVI understood well that sentimentalism, is a fatal risk facing love today as it distorts truth with mere emotion and opinion. Essentially, a Christianity of charity without truth would be more or less interchangeable with a pool of good sentiments, helpful for social cohesion, but of little relevance. In other words, there would no longer be any real place for God in this world, right? Without any kind of definitive and absolute truth, what happens to charity? Well, it is, it is confined to a narrow field devoid of any real meaning. And this is why uh, one Peter Seewald poses a, a series of questions to Benedict XVI. And, and now I'm turning to uh, the conversation that Benedict XVI had with Peter Seewald. Uh, it comes to us in book form titled The Light of the World. And what I want to do is just Uh, read a few of these questions that comes from Peter Seewald, because I think um, Benedict's words here are very important for us to reflect with. Um, And to some extent, I've touched upon these before. So this is uh, Seewald's question to Benedict XVI. In his futuristic novel, Brave New World, the British author Huxley had predicted in 1932 that falsification would be the decisive element of modernity, In a false reality, with its false truth, or the absence of truth altogether, nothing in the final analysis is important anymore. There is no truth. There is no standpoint. Today, in fact, truth is regarded as far too subjective a concept for us to find therein a universally valid standard. The distinction between genuine and fake seems to have been abolished. Everything is to some extent negotiable. Is that the relativism against which you were warning so urgently? Um, That's a great question in how he phrased the real meaning of relativism. Benedict's response, It is obvious that the concept of truth has become suspect. So truth is now something that we are all suspicious of, huh? He goes on, Of course, it is correct that it has been much abused. Intolerance and cruelty have occurred in the name of truth. 
To that extent, people are afraid when someone says, this is the truth, or even, I have the truth. We never have it. At best, it has us. Beautiful. We never have it. At best, it has us. Bennett continues, No one will dispute that one must be careful and cautious in claiming the truth, but simply to dismiss it as unattainable is really destructive. A large proportion of contemporary philosophies, in fact, consist of saying that man is not capable of truth, but viewed in that way, man would not be capable of ethical values either. Then he would have no standards. Then he would only have to consider how he arranged things reasonably for himself, and then at any rate the opinion of the majority would be the only criterion that counted. History, however, has sufficiently demonstrated how destructive majorities can be, for instance, in systems such as Nazism and Marxism, all of which also stood against truth in particular. Beautiful. Peter Sewald poses the next question. We are building a dictatorship of relativism, you declared in your homily at the opening of the conclave in 2005. That does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate standard consists solely of one's own ego and desires. Benedict's response, that is why we must have the courage to dare to say, yes, man must seek the truth. He is capable of truth. It goes without saying that truth requires criteria for verification and falsification. It must always be accompanied by tolerance also. But then truth also points out to us those constant values which have made mankind great. That is why the humility to recognize the truth and to accept it as a standard has to be relearned and practiced again. The truth comes to rule not through violence, but rather through its own power. This is the central theme of John's gospel. When brought before Pilate, Jesus professes that he himself is the truth and the witness to the truth. He does not defend the truth with legions, but rather makes it visible through his passion and thereby also implements it. And of course, what he's talking about there is the truth that is discovered in the poverty of the cross. Huh? Beautiful. So, in contemporary society, we tend to say things like, you have your truth and I have my truth, and let us be on our way. The only problem with that is Christ did not come as a truth, right? But he came as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, as John 14, 6 reminds us. He did not come as I am a way, a truth, and a life. No, the way, the truth, and the life. So Christ is the sum total of truth who has revealed what this truth looks like. And it is our job to study this truth, right? That we might come to understand the beauty of this revelation of truth, which everywhere and all the time invites us into the fullness of charity in truth, as Benedict XVI would want us to see it, huh? We ought to remember something here. <laughs> Man's potential is not realized exclusively in how we progress technologically, right? But no, how we love in the light of the revelation of love. How we love in the light of love incarnate. And so we study 
the beauty of Jesus Christ that we might come to imitate it more perfectly. And certainly we do this with him living inside of us. You know, this reality (laughs) that has us reflecting into Christ as the sum total of truth, the sum total of our deepest aches and desires, has me thinking about a trip my family made uh, to, of all places, Legoland in San Diego. Again, I have four children, uh, 10, 9, 5, and 2. And, and now, in this 10-hour trip to Legoland, we were made to take several pit stops to restaurants that you know had play structures so we can break it up a little bit, right? Well, you can imagine how our little ones were caught up with these play structures, huh? And point of fact, it was very difficult for my wife and I to pull our kids away from their playtime in the play structures. I, I recall telling my wife something like, if they only knew where they were going, right? How this experience pales in comparison to what awaits them. Well, in Catholicism, we have the full expression of what is good about Christianity. And oh, what awaits us, <laughs> when we get in that boat with all of its truth, beauty, and goodness. Not some of this or some of that, lest we spend a lifetime on a play structure at McDonald's, so to speak. But the whole thing, and and for that trip, analogously speaking, right, it was Legoland. It's interesting. As I'm reflecting into this story, once my wife and I pulled out some pictures of Legoland and our kids saw where they were headed, They hopped in that van, and we are on our way, huh? You see, my friends, the church is like that in the sacramental life. The church is like that in the beauty of the saints. The church is like that when she is at her best. Once we have this personal encounter with Christ, we never want anything less than the whole feast. We never want anything less than ultimately what we were born for, what we were created for. And this, of course, is the beauty that comes to us in the church. Now, that being said, um, I want to go back to that word sentimentality here a little bit, a word that, that can probably be best described as emotional indulgence. You know, it was the great Russian author uh, Leo Tolstoy who drew a pretty clear image of sentimentality when writing about fashionable Russian ladies who would be moved to tears by a theater performance, but at the same time remain oblivious to their own coachman sitting outside waiting for them in the freezing cold. The inability to see outside of ourselves is what Leo Tolstoy was capturing and certainly what sentimentality defines. Sentimentality begins and ends with emotion and is not in harmony with justice or the needs of others. You know, as we have uh, touched upon before, and certainly an emphasis in the thought of Benedict XVI, is that there is no advantage in dispensing mercy to someone who has not repented and remains committed to a wrong way of living, right? Maybe here we can draw from another illustration from the arts. And this point is dramatically brought home in one Heinrich von Kleist's play, The Prince of Hamburg. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. The prince, having disobeyed a military order, is what? Sentenced to death. His father, the elector of Brandenburg, wants to save the life of his son. 
but cannot offer him mercy as long as the prince does not see the justice of his sentence and ultimately remains unrepentant, right? In his own words, as if I must argue with him for my pardon, I just as soon know nothing of his mercy. Hmm. Now, again, for those of us who are familiar with this play, know the play ends on a high note. After, the, after considerable reflection, the prince formally acknowledges the justice of his sentence, an act which makes him eligible for his father's mercy. Justice is acknowledged, mercy is applied, and well, for all of those who like happy endings, we get a happy ending, right? So, in the end, sentimentality wishes that things could be better, but without taking the necessary steps to make them better. And why am I talking about this? Because mercy itself, my friends, is not sentimentality. Mercy positions itself exquisitely between justice and the one who is suffering. And all of this brings us back to Benedict's words that come to us from paragraphs 2 and 3. Paragraphs that are very important as they show how charity and truth and truth and charity are both right and mutually illuminating. Listen to Benedict's words here. Charity is easily dismissed as irrelevant for interpreting and giving direction to moral responsibility. Hence, the need to link charity with truth, not only in the sequence, pointed out by St. Paul, but also in the inverse, in complementary sequence of charity and truth. Only in truth does charity shine forth. Only in truth can charity be authentically lived. Truth is the light that gives meaning and value to charity. That light is both the light of reason and the light of faith, through which the intellect attains to the natural and supernatural truth of charity. It grasps its meaning as gift, acceptance, and communion. Beautiful. Now, earlier we were going through Benedict's conversation with Peter Seewald and how he focused in on Christ's passion and how he responded to Pilate's question, what is truth? And now listen to what he says elsewhere. What is truth? Pilate was not alone in dismissing this question as unanswerable and irrelevant for his purposes. Today, too, in political argument and in discussion of the foundations of law, it is generally experienced as disturbing, that is, truth. Yet, if man lives without truth, life passes him by. Ultimately, he surrenders the field to whoever is the stronger. Redemption in the fullest sense can only consist in the truth becoming recognizable. And it becomes recognizable when God becomes recognizable. He becomes recognizable in Jesus Christ. Now listen to these words in the light of his response to Peter Seewald. In Christ, God entered the world and set up the criterion of truth in the midst of history. Truth is outwardly powerless in the world, just as Christ is powerless by the world's standards. He has no legions. He is crucified. Yet in his very powerlessness, he is powerful. And thus, again and again, does truth become power. So what is he talking about there? Well, as I noted earlier, the importance of the relationship between truth and poverty. What do I mean? Why does Paul 
boast of his weakness? Huh? Why does Paul preach Christ crucified? What does Paul say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. What's going on there? He wants us to see that we become more powerful the weaker we are. How? Well, we make more room for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We make more room for God to work in our life. And so when we are consumed by love, ultimately we begin to discover the power of God. And it is not that we possess God per se. Oh, I have received the Holy Spirit and I finally possess God. No, this is the great Christian paradox. The more love of God we receive, the less we actually possess God. Because if God is love, and we know God's love is totally and absolutely other-centered, then the moment we receive this love, we give it away. And the more of God's love that we give away, the more powerful God becomes through us. So once we are imbued with that deeper sense of what God's love is all about, then, and only then, will we begin to discover what Benedict XVI is talking about here, which is simply how God's love works, not only in and through us, but for the world and the sanctification of the world. This is the power um, that comes to us from such rich reflections of Benedict XVI. And these are things that we ought to be thinking about. I, I know it has been a real point of emphasis for me over recent months to critically reflect into what love is all about because so often we talk about God's love in such a generic sense that we never really talk about God's love. We don't pin it down to really mean anything. Well, my dear friends, the cross with the corpus nailed to the cross is the meaning of God's love. And what it teaches us is simply this. Enough is never enough until it gives everything, right? Enough is never enough until it gives everything. That's the greatness of God's mercy. And the question has been posed, and I've talked about this a number of times. Could God have saved the world with a drop of his blood? Well, God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do, right? But why didn't he save the world with a drop of his blood? Well, if there are five and a half to six quarts of blood in the human body, then there are five and a half to six quarts of human blood to give. And this is what he gives on the cross. He holds nothing back because enough is never enough until it gives everything. And in this way, when the power of God's love lives within us, we become instruments of God's transforming love. And amen to that. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. We will pick up here next week with some more reflections on Benedict the 16th. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 530 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.